I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Strasvutia and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 29, Ivan the Terrible, part one. Thanks for listening in, and let me start by wishing everybody out there a very happy and a very peaceful New Year. Okay, so where were we? Well, last time out, back in good old 2021, we did a retrospective on the Rus state between the years of 1015 and 1505, looking at the key events and the underlying reasons for those key events. Then we looked at the impact of the Mongol invasion stroke occupation upon the Rus and the key very high level takeaways from both of those exercises were number one, the Rus stroke Russians were left with a deep-seated fear of occupation and would do everything within their power to stop it from happening again. And number two, that things worked better when the state was united under a strong autocratic ruler or at least they had done. Whether they would in the future is another matter. And then finally we covered the reign of Ivan the Great's son, Vasily III, who kept things pretty much on the straight and narrow, but died in 1533 due to an infected abscess, leaving Moscow under the nominal rule of his three-year-old son. This week I'm going to start off by looking at the overall European political stroke geopolitical landscape in the early 16th century. And then we'll get stuck into the early part of Ivan IV's, aka Ivan the Terrible's, time in charge. It will take us from 1533 up to 1550-ish. Before we start though, I just want to say a massive thank you to all of you who followed the podcast on the various platforms that you're listening on. As I always say, it really is appreciated and makes all of the writing, recording and editing feel so much more worthwhile. So again, thank you. Okay, enough already. Let's do some history of Russia. Oh, and Europe. 
So, what was the overall political and geopolitical picture in Europe at the beginning of the 16th century? And what was the Moscow-centric view? And what is geopolitics anyway? Well, very simply, geopolitics is the study of the effects and impacts of geography on politics and international relations, and it can be applied at the global, regional and national level. So I went into the whole idea, or science, I suppose you could call it, of geopolitics back in episode one, The Caged Bear, which looked at how Russia throughout the ages had been, and still is to a certain extent, the captive of its own geography, and how this has affected its political thinking and decision-making throughout the ages. Okay, so that's a brief explanation of geopolitics. Let's now look at the overall picture. So in much of Europe, the overall political dynamic and to an extent the geopolitical landscape were both undergoing a seismic shift, driven by three major or massive events or themes. And those were the start of the age of exploration or discovery and subsequent colonisation, which in turn were driven by advancements in maritime technology, the Renaissance, and finally the beginnings of religious schism, reformation and conflict. So let's start with the age of exploration and discovery. So the Portuguese kicked this whole thing off uh, with their voyages down the west coast of Africa. And by 1488, they had reached the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of the continent. And from there, they crossed the Indian Ocean to India China and Japan. A decade or so later, Vasco da Gama had discovered the way around the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of South America, and thence the route into the Pacific. Spain then joined the party, and in 1492 sponsored probably the most famous of these voyages, Christopher Columbus's discovery of the New World, although now we think that the Vikings had beaten him to it some 470 years before when they reached Newfoundland. And then in 1519, Magellan set off from Seville and returned three years later, having circumnavigated the entire world. And later on in the 16th century, the British, the French, Dutch, Danes and Swedes all decided that they wanted a piece of the action, particularly as Portugal, and to a greater extent Spain, were growing rich on the acquisition of and trade in gold, silver, spices and slaves, and were expanding their territories with the acquisition of new colonies. Two things that all of these nations had in common were a selection of deep water ports and harbours and easy access to the Atlantic Ocean. If you didn't have either of these things, like most countries in Central and Eastern Europe, Moscow included, then you would have been hard-pressed to join the club, even if you'd wanted to. And that simply is geopolitics at play. Okay, so it wasn't the main driver for the Age of Discovery. That was a spirit of adventure, plus technical know-how and a large dollop of entrepreneurism. But where you were situated underpinned the whole enterprise. Okay, moving on, and secondly, we have the Renaissance. So the Renaissance, as we've already noted in a recent episode, was a mid-15th century cultural movement 
which saw an explosion of new learning, thinking, ideas, science, politics and artistic interpretation coming to Europe via the Italian peninsula. And one of the main catalysts for this cultural revolution were Byzantine scholars with their text who had escaped from the wreckage of Constantinople's demise back in 1453. And then finally, we have the Reformation and the beginnings of religious conflict. So Europe had already seen various breakaway groups or movements attempt to change or reinterpret accepted religious practice, i.e. the Bogomils, the Cathars, and most recently the Hussites in early 15th century Bohemia. In 1517, a German monk, Martin Luther, either did or didn't nail a list of 95 theses or objections to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. But whether he did or didn't is really neither here nor there, because the objections, which mainly concerned the sale of indulgences, the pardoning of sins and the authority of the Pope, were translated and printed, and over the next year and a half they were widely circulated throughout Northern Europe. And although Luther was tried and condemned at the Diet of Worms in 1521, he had a degree of political support and protection, and after lying low for a while, was able to continue spreading his views and gathering further adherence to the cause. And so began the Protestant or Lutheran movement, which provoked reaction from the Catholic Church, and almost inevitably led to a series of religious wars that over the next 150 years would completely change the religious and political landscape throughout Europe, and in time, the rest of the world. So that's the high-level view of the overall picture in Northern and Western Europe mainly. Now we'll take an equally quick look at what was going on in Moscow and the lands that surrounded it. So geopolitically, Moscow was in a bit of a bind, inhabiting a part of the world that was basically, as we've seen, indefensible. Still haunted by the Mongol occupation, and smarting from the Lithuanian takeover of former Rus lands. Ivan III, and to a lesser extent Vasily III, had both successfully achieved buffer zones around the Moscow heartland, and interestingly enough, keen observers of the current situation in Russia will have noticed that right now, Russia is attempting to protect its modern-day buffer zones in the Ukraine, the Baltic States, and the Caucasus. And, just lately, Kazakhstan. And whilst to its east the threat from the Mongol successor states had been somewhat lessened, there were potential areas of concern, some old and some new, to Muscovy's south, from the rise of the Ottoman Empire, to the west from Lithuania and Poland, and to the north from the growing threat of Sweden and the Livonians. And so, as Western Europe embarked on the Age of Discovery and enjoyed the fruits of the Renaissance, balanced, it has to be said, by the downside of religious conflict, all Moscow could do was try to continue on the same course and seek to expand where it could, which was going to be in the relatively empty lands to its north and east. But, leaving all of this to one side for a moment, in 1533, Moscow wasn't worried about any of this because their biggest problem was that its new commander-in-chief was a three-year-old boy. 
Now, obviously at this stage, young Ivan IV wasn't old enough to be in charge of anything, and therefore the practicalities of the situation dictated that a regent usually working with a regency council would need to be appointed to control, administer and safeguard the state on behalf of the infant grand prince. And again, normally the person who was appointed as regent, or as in this case appointed themselves as regent, was usually a relative who actually had control or possession of the person that they were regent for. And so it was Ivan's mother, keep saying Ivan, it should be Ivan, there. And so it was Ivan's mother, Yelena Glinskaya, who happened to tick both of those boxes. And she worked quickly to get certain key people on board who could bolster and legitimise her new regime. And those were her family, the Glinsky. Uh, secondly, a powerful boyar noble named Ivan Fyodorovich Obolensky, who was also rumoured to be her lover. And then finally, Daniel, the Metropolitan of Moscow. Note, however, that not included in this ruling clique were Ivan's uncles, Yuri and Andrei, and two other important boyar families, the Shuisky and the Belsky. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Yelena and the gang quickly got to work on a number of fronts. First off, there was a reform of the currency, which introduced a unified monetary system across the state. And then in 1536, an armistice was signed with Lithuania, which simultaneously neutralised the influence of Sweden. And finally, a new defensive wall was constructive around Moscow. But probably the key events in the mid to late 1530s were the further sidelining of the Shusky and Belsky families and then imprisonment, and finally the murder of her two brothers-in-law, Ivan's uncles, Yuri and Andre. However, if you play this game, you've got to have your wits about you, and watch your back, which Yelena didn't do, because in 1538 she was also dead, poisoned by her son's governess, the superbly and perhaps ironically named Agrippina Fedorovna Chelyadnina who some historians believe was coerced by the Shuiskis to perform the deed. So now, the eight-year-old Ivan and his six-year-old deaf-mute brother Yuri were both orphans, and under the control of the Shuisky family, whose first move was to replace Daniel as Metropolitan, and who then spent the next eight years fighting with the Belskis and other Boyar families 
to maintain their grip on their de facto power. And we have a glimpse of Ivan's life during, I've said Ivan again, we have a glimpse of Ivan's life during this time from letters supposedly written later in his reign, in which he remembered my brother Yuri of blessed memory, and by that time Yuri was dead, and I were brought up like vagrants and children of the poorest. What I suffered for the want of garments and food. Now we don't know if those accounts were true, but we do know that as he grew older, Ivan was someone who could bear a grudge, and maybe this was as a result of the treatment he is supposed to have received during his formative years. Anyway, the boyars are back in business and doing what they do best, which is playing their Machiavellian games and taking their collective eye off the ball. And in this particular case, the ball is the Carne of Kazan, one of those numerous Golden Horde successor states, which during the late 1530s was repeatedly sending raiding parties into Muscovite territory. In 1540, the Kazan Khan Safagire formed an alliance with the Crimean Tatars, and together they decided to invade Moscow, at which point the boyars stopped their own internal feuding and collectively agreed to send an army of Kasim Tatars, who were allies of Muscovy, to try to at least contain the invasion, which luckily for the boyars they were able to do at a place called Murom, located around 170 miles to the east of Moscow. So the capital was safe, but while Safagire had been on the campaign trail, a pro-Moscow group had attempted to seize power in Kazan, and in 1545, the now 15-year-old Ivan, no doubt with the grudging approval of the boyars, mounted an expedition to the river Volga to show his support for the pro-Russian party. And as Ivan grew into manhood, he drew around him a number of reform-minded boyars, who were fed up with the constant infighting between the Shuskis and the Belskis, and over the next couple of years, they helped the Grand Prince to move further away from the family's influence and to start to set his own agenda. And by 1547, Ivan and his allies, including the church, had finally gained complete control of the council and decided that now was the time to take personal control of the state. And so on the 16th of January, 1547, Ivan was crowned with Monomach's cap at the Cathedral of the Dormitian. He was the first ruler to be crowned a Tsar of all the Russias, partly imitating his grandfather Ivan III, or the Great, who'd given himself the honorific title of Grand Prince of all Rus. Two weeks after his coronation, Ivan got married to his first wife. Yep, there'd be a few. A certain Anastasia Romanovna, a member of the Romanov family, and that's the podcast's first mention of the famous Romanovs who, as you probably already know, will go on to rule Russia for 300 years, um, fairly shortly. And talking of many wives, and just for some historical perspective, over in a small, damp island on the fringes of Western Europe, England's own Ivan the Terrible, although I'm probably pushing things a bit far with that comparison, Henry VIII died on the 28th of January 1547, so just round about the same time that Ivan was getting married. Okay, so with a couple of strokes of the pen, Ivan had become an emperor, 
and Moscow had become Russia, or at least the most important part of Russia. But to ensure that he was going to be more than an emperor, an emperor in name only, and that there was actually going to be an empire to run, the new Tsar would need to get busy. However, before he could do any of that, Ivan would have a problem to attend to closer to home. June 1547 was unseasonably warm, dry and windy. And Moscow's buildings were mostly made of wood. And you're probably ahead of me here. On the 24th, a fire started and before long, whole sections of the city were in flames. And then to make matters worse, the fire swept into the Kremlin, blew up the powder stores in several of the towers. Several days later, when the smoke had cleared, figuratively and literally, it was discovered that about 3,500 people had died and around 20,000 houses had been destroyed. And back then, just like nowadays, this disaster had to have been someone's fault. And the good citizens of Moscow decided that the fire was the fault of Ivan's maternal relatives, the Glinsky, who had been unpopular for some time, mainly because they had managed to do pretty well for themselves since the time of the Regency, much to the annoyance of some of the other Boyar families. Yep, it was the Glinskys what done it, and somebody needed to teach them a lesson. And so in time, a mob form, formed, and Yuri Glinsky was stoned to death inside the Cathedral of the Dormitian in front of a horrified Metropolitan Makari. Yuri's brother, Mikhail Glinsky, attempted to flee to Lithuania, but failed and had to go into hiding with his mother, Anna, the Tsar's grandmother, who was accused of having used sorcery to start the whole thing off. Yeah, right, of course she did. Anyway, the scapegoats had been found, the Glinsky were in disgrace, the citizens of Moscow felt smug and satisfied, and Ivan could start to concentrate on actually becoming a real emperor with a real empire. And to achieve his imperial dreams, he embarked upon an initial three-point plan, which consisted of sorting out the overall administration of his lands by bypassing the boyars and the church as much as he could and bringing in experts and administrators whom he could trust. And then secondly, attempting to increase Russia's influence and trade to the north and northwest. And then finally, stabilising the regions to his east that were run by the numerous successor states of the Golden Horde, and then expanding Russia's territory. So that first task was achieved relatively easily, despite grumblings from the powerful Orthodox Church. But Ivan was less successful with point number two. He decided that Russia needed a port on the Baltic. But the problem was, it was quite a fundamental problem really, in that Russia did not have a Baltic coastline. So he did the next best thing, which was to build one in 1550 as close as he possibly could to the Baltic coast, inland on the river Narva. The problem was, however, that the German merchant companies that Ivan was hoping to attract just didn't want the hassle of transporting their goods any further than they had to, and they were more than happy to keep using the Baltic ports in Livonia and Lithuania. Undeterred by this setback, though, Ivan decided that if the German merchants didn't want to play ball, then maybe another maritime nation with growing trade aspirations would, and so an approach was made in 1555 
to the recently formed Muscovy Company in London. Now, the Muscovy Company is worth an episode all to itself, something I will do at some point in the future, and so I'm not going to get too much into the detail here. Suffice to say that although a small amount of trade and a lengthy affiliation of sorts between Russia and England did come to pass, the logistics and distance involved resulted in, at best, a peripheral relationship. Where Ivan Ivan made the most headway, though, was out to his east. But, dear listeners, I've run out of steam this week, and so unfortunately, all of that will have to wait. So, join me next time when we'll look at the second part of Ivan's reign and see just how he managed to pick up the sobriquet, the Terrible, and also learn that perhaps the Terrible is not quite the best description for this complex, difficult man. On the other hand, perhaps it was. Anyway, it's good to be back, and until next time, and as I always say, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.